You're listening to the Bird Dog Babe Podcast with my mom, Courtney Bastion. This podcast is sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, Boss Shot Shells, and Onyx Hunt. And today's episode is brought to you by Briley, a legacy of shooting innovation. What I am trying to do through my hunting and, and my resume and time is is to to find how we can elevate what we do. Is there something that we can do better? Because I don't think any of us are doing it perfectly. I think there's always something that we can learn, always something that we can refine a little bit. And and if there's an element of humility and there's an, an understanding that we can either be a cause that helps or or detracts from hunting, uh, then then maybe we listen a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And okay, you know, I was going to post this, but um, I decided against it. And I have hero shots on my 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 Instagram. Um, you can see those. I'm okay with that. But you know, I try to you know clean up some blood. I try to you know simple things like putting tongues back in mouths and. And trying to pose those animals in a way that's respectful. Uh, you know, there's there's small things like that that go such a long ways in, in helping to present hunting as something more than just we are Elmer Fudd. World famous for their chokes and tube sets, Briley also provides gun services, accessories, and products for original equipment manufacturers. I use the Cesar Guarini Spectrum Black ported 20-gauge Briley chokes. I've been shooting with Briley chokes for a year now, and it has been super cool to see and learn the differences they make when I pattern my shotgun. Briley is always looking for a better way, a different way, to make you a better shooter by providing you with the better product. Go to Briley.com and get yourself a set of the best chokes on the market, and be sure to get one of their speed wrenches as well. That thing is pretty slick. Patreon patrons, if you don't already have plans for this Friday night, I'd love for you to join Katie Willis and I for a live recording of the next episode of Whiskey and Wild Hairs. I don't know which story she'll be sharing, but she has titled it, If It Doesn't Get You Arrested, It Might Get You Killed. (laughs) Pour yourself a glass of whiskey and join us to hear another story about Bird Dog and Katie's wild adventures. Then stick around for some fun follow-up conversations. It's $5 per month to join or $54 per year at patreon.com forward slash the bird dog babe. Thanks to my partners, Siren Shotguns and Dakota 283. I'm told that the new addition to the Siren Shotgun lineup will be announced this week. Siren is the only company that has an entire line of shotguns fit for women Follow Siren USA on Instagram to be one of the first to find out about the new edition. And be sure to check out all of the products Dakota 283 has to offer. You all know how much I love and trust their G3 kennels to keep my dogs safe during travel, but Dakota 283 also offers a Dine and Dash system, which is super convenient on the go, as well as a Groom Pro pet tub, which is portable, yet super sturdy. Be sure to use promo code BIRDDOGBABE for 10% off any Dakota 283 purchase. My guest today is Everett Headley. Everett is an outdoor writer and educator who grew up hunting and fishing in Montana. He is the host to a new podcast called Venery and Veritas, which focuses on the peripherals of hunting, elevating your hunt, wild game, cooking, ethics, conservation, philosophy, controversy, and education. In this episode, we discuss his choice of bird dogs, falconry, and ways to elevate your hunt and tastefully share the story. 
All right, let's get after it. I'm excited to have you on Everett because you have been instrumental in a big change um, with just how I not only perceive hunting, but of how I'm doing it now versus when I started 13 years ago, you know, with a lot of the education you brought to light through ethics, through conservation and the history, the history was a big piece of it that, you know, they don't teach you going through school mm-hmm. about the, right, right. the history of hunting and why there's a fair chase, why there's, you know, the migratory act, why we, they don't tell you that. So that was really interesting piece. And I think, uh, important of knowing where you came from and then where you're going to be. So, right. yeah. So thanks for well, doing that. <laughs> I really appreciate those are, those are kind words, Courtney. Um, I, I agree with you. It's not, it's not secret knowledge, but it's not knowledge that's really taught a lot. And unless you're diving into the conservation world, uh, you've not heard of names like Grinnell, um, Audubon, uh, in a sense that is related back to conservation and to hunting. And mm-hmm. I think it, it's, it's something that I certainly have a passion for. You know, I named my first red tail Grinnell after George Bird, and I, I, I consider him my conservation hero. But when you talk about hunting ethics, uh, it really kind of ends at fair chase and people stop there. And I think there's, there's so much more around hunting ethics that we could really dive into that kind of just gets pushed to the side. And, and I think it's a conversation that is becoming more and more relevant today when we start to look at uh, the impact that non-consumptive users, if we want to label them that, are having on the on on habitat, their increased involvement in various um, hunting wildlife management agency discussions. And, and we, we owe it to ourselves as sportsmen to, to be informed and involved. And that's kind of what I've always preached. So I'm glad to be here with you. Today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming. So yeah, I am, met you going through the master hunter program and then you came to our women's grouse camp and and subbed for the Montana FWP portion of the uh, being bear savvy in the woods yeah, amongst a lot of other things. And so I really appreciated you taking the time to do that. You were, it, you provide a lot of great insight. Well, that was kind of timely, wasn't it? We had just had that, uh, that grizzly attack in Ovando, what right. a week before something like that. And- Which is like 20 minutes from that location. Yeah. I mean, it was next door in the grizzly world, right? So, right. you know, for those ladies to be out there doing it, it was definitely something that uh, they needed to be aware of. And you had them from all over the country and mm-hmm. bringing them to Montana, showing them uh, uh, what we have here. But, you know, we have some real, some real dangers too, that people just need to know how to mitigate. Yeah. And we're, we're doing that again this September. So I hope you'll keep that evening yeah. open to come back. I if you can get it on the books now, that'd be great. In <laughs> September, you start talking about the the elk rut, and I am, I am pretty much off the grid the entirety of September until until I fill those tags. But I yeah. will, I will make an exception. I'll come out of the woods. I have no idea what I'll be <laughs> like, but I will, I'll come up there. I, I think, enjoyed it. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I had a difficult time getting a hold of you in the first place, since you were off the grid, and it just so happened you're going to be passing 
from one location to the next that you're able to stop in for a minute. Yeah. I was in (laughs) Idaho at the time and I was on my way over to South Dakota, both antelope hunts. Yeah. And, and if you call my, my cell phone, it has a, a voicemail that says, if, you, if you're getting this, try me on my, my inReach, my satellite messenger. Because if you have that number, you, I have that with me all the time. And I, I, I do a lot of business over my inReach or mm-hmm. just a message that makes me come out of the woods, get to cell phone service and take some calls. But otherwise, yes, that's my life, kind of nomadic a little bit. And I, I enjoy it thoroughly. It's, it's a blast. Yeah. And, you know, I really never got a chance to learn your history and hunting and how you came into it. And so while we're in the midst of introducing you to the audience, give me a little general history of when you started hunting and uh, kind of where you are today with it. Wow. I, hunting has been part of my family culture for my entire life. My dad took me when I was the littlest, um, when I could probably barely walk, we were in the woods and I remember I was probably six or seven and finally got a BB gun. And so we were able to walk in the woods together, mostly on, on pheasant hunts is what I remember going on as a kid and taking my BB gun and, and learning a lot of gun safety, um, with, with just that, my dad teaching me that kind of thing. I grew up with five sisters. And so there were many times it was my dad and I, and we just kind of left the house and we were out doing something. Right. And, and it's, so it's been a part of who I am and I feel incredibly blessed to have grown up in Montana and had those experiences. I was talking to a biologist yesterday and he's, he's a few years older than me, maybe, maybe a couple of decades. I'm trying to be nice and generous, but he, he and I talked about how kids growing up today, very different than what we grew up with. And when I was in high school, Columbine happened. And that was the first time anybody even began to question, you know, bringing our deer rifles to school, leaving them in our truck, cutting class a little bit early so that we can go get in on the evening hunt. Right. And that was just something we did. And and nobody really questioned it. No, our mm-hmm. parents didn't think that we were doing something that was malicious. We just kind of went with, with, with it. And, um, and so it's a really different place that we live in today. Uh, I got heavily involved in, in Boy Scouts and and that really gave me uh, this, this whole theater, so to speak, to develop these outdoor skills. And I thoroughly em- embraced that. I was very heavily involved in, in uh, all things Boy Scouts and, and was out training and teaching with them and, and participating in camps. And, and it gave me these, uh, these avenues to both explore and to be able to help, you know, younger scouts coming in, teach them, you know, whether it was just whittling a point on a stick and not, you know, slicing your finger off. And, and so at an early age, there was this love of outdoors and being outside and I'm old enough to, to remember what life was like before the internet now. And, and that was, that was an incredible place to be. And, and so growing up and, and becoming an adult, it has always been uh, a part of who I am. I've always kind of tried to, to keep that connection to the outdoors through, through my time in the military and through school and, and really trying to stay connected. And, and I spent some of my time as an adult outside of Montana and it was everything I could do to come back. Right. And I was looking for whatever I could to find a way to make it here. 
And um, when I finally was able to come back home, I told my wife, I don't care if I have to work at McDonald's, I'm, I'm, I'm staying here. This is home, right? And everything <laughs> I want really is here in Montana. If I want waterfowl, I've got Eastern Montana. If I want big game, I've got pretty much the whole state. If uh, you want to get into upland birds, we've got them all. And, uh, you know, there's turkeys spread around in there. And if you get bored in the summer, there's fly fishing too. And so there's really no shortage of, of all things outdoor rec here in Montana. And for a sportsman, there's, there's really not a better place to be. And I'm, I'm sounding like a commercial for Montana. And maybe I should talk a little bit more about how it's, you know, negative 10 outside and we've got grizzly bears everywhere. And, uh, Scared people like away. Yeah. yeah. Talk about those things. But, you know, that's just kind of who I am. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a classic um, example of, of a, a boy that grows up with hunting and it just, it's who I am. It's how we filled freezers. It's what we ate. And it's, it's so much more than just, you know, a passion or a hobby and, and even more than a lifestyle. It is exactly, um, if it weren't for those elements in my life, I'm not sure where I would be in life. Mm-hmm. So just to jump back on that for a second, you, when you remember pheasant hunting when you were little, did you grow up with bird dogs? No, uh, my uncle had some Britneys, okay. uh, but for the most part, I was the bird dog and we, <laughs> we would walk fields and, uh, I was the one that went into the the bushes or whatnot and, you know, jumped the quail or, or, you know, went and retrieved the bird. So, you know, that was, that was my thing. Um, sure. You know, I had family down in Kansas and we would go down there. And, and hunt pheasants in, in, in Kansas. And uh, they had some dogs, but to be honest, I, I was the dog I grew up with was like a border collie pound mix of some kind and great dog, but really just a companion. And so I, I didn't really get to experience what it was like to work with a dog hunting until much later in life. And, and it was really during a dove hunt in Tennessee that somebody had a lab and you know, we're, we're shooting all these birds and this guy it, it is collecting them for us. Right. And he's sending his dog on marks and, and the dog is going and it was an all day shoot. And I don't think that dog ever sat still for more than a minute. He was always running after another bird. And that, that's really what clicked in me that that was something I needed to be a part of and have in my experience in hunting. And, and so mm-hmm. I, it wasn't too long after that, I got into labs myself. And what about your, mother and your sisters did any of them do any hunting at all they did yeah Uh, my my mom my mom liked to be out more than she liked to actually hunt Mm -hmm. and but she was always willing to go she was always willing to take me in fact I remember one time I was probably a freshman in high school my dad was gone for some reason and I didn't have my uh I didn't I wasn't driving yet or this was eighth grade. I can't recall sometime in that, that neighborhood, but we get into her Buick sedan. We drive up into the mountains during the middle of probably November snow everywhere. And, and it's not a place you want to take a car like that into in that time. But my mom did it and she took me out and I was able to walk through the woods and, and, you know, go do some hunting. And, and, uh, she was really supportive of that. And I, I'm not sure what she did, probably sat in the car and read a book while she was waiting for me to walk around the woods. Right. But mm-hmm. she, she always was willing to take us and, and was very supportive of that. I do remember, um, 
you know, most of my sisters hunted in some way, but as they got older, I think they got out of it. Um, and, and I was number five of six. So I'm, I'm, you know, maybe it was my dad and I, and and my, um, desire to continue to go more that maybe it just kind of dissipated in them. But I I do remember them. They, uh, they, they liked to hunt when I was younger. Mm -hmm. None of them do today. Um, they do call me, ask me for, you know, for some, some meat and yeah. Wondering if I have a duck in the freezer or something like that, that they could have. And <laughs> that's awesome. I'm, I'm happy to help and provide, but you know, um, I also like duck and <laughs> like to have ducks in my freezer for me later on. So, yeah. And you're, you're good at sharing your harvest. And I remember you told us a story during COVID, you kind of emptied out your freezer pretty quickly, helping a bunch of people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to hunt as much as I do. And so I have, I have a handful of freezers here and, and I try to rotate through that, but I have, I have two families in particular that I share pretty regularly with them. Every August, I kind of go through the freezer, do a deep dive and kind of clear some stuff out for the upcoming season. And and they're very appreciative of it. They love it. They eat it. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy to be able to share in that way. I mean, they, they've got, one family's got five kids, the other's got four kids and, and they, they're getting something that, um, is, is probably the top notch healthiest thing you can get. Right. And, and right. it's great meat and it's exposing them to something that even if they don't hunt, they, they realize where food comes from and, and, and are really supportive of it in that way. But during COVID we had meat shortages and you would go to Walmart and there would be nothing there. And, and it, I was able to really um, help these families to, to have, you know, that fresh protein in, in their freezers now. And it, uh, it cleared me out pretty good. I got towards the end of of 2020 and I started to wonder what, uh, if we were going to have enough to get through and to the next season and what the next season was going to look like. And uh, I think, I think about that story and it really, for me, it's something that I was, I was glad I had that opportunity to share in that way because, you know, global pandemic happening, we had no idea what the next step was going to be. And, and I, I kept thinking, you know, I have this ability to help my neighbors and provide for them in that way. And I'm, I'm just happy to have had that, that opportunity to serve them in that way. Uh, and, you know, thankfully things have kind of gotten back to normal in that regard but you know if uh if the apocalypse ever happens at least i know that we're we're gonna be okay in my neighborhood and and have things that we need yeah and your season your 2021 season a couple highlights i noticed on your highlight reel of instagram um i mean you had a pretty epic antelope year tell us about that year of the antelope Um, (laughs) you know, I, antelope are, are beyond uh, an obsession for me. I love everything about hunting them, pursuing them where they're at. And and they are my favorite choice to eat. Uh, they, they get a rap that is very undeserved and I have yet to have an antelope that did not just exceed my expectations when it came to being table fair, they are 
the best. And, and so I really try to, um, you know, I, I really try to include them in my schedule every fall. Uh, I'm usually almost, uh, well, past several years, I've always been in Wyoming for one or two bucks and maybe a couple of does. Uh, Montana has not yet given me a tag in five years, I believe, which is kind of ridiculous. And, and I'm going to be rethinking what I do there, but, um, they, they owe me a tag. So if they're listening, uh, this fall would be really nice to, to draw my Montana buck tag for sure. But I had an antelope tag in Idaho that was for muzzleloader, which was a really incredible hunt. I have really kind of dabbled in muzzleloaders and finally, uh, kind of jumped all, all in with it, bought my own, got a, a Lyman Great Plains rifle and 50 cal percussion that, really was a lot of fun to develop the load there was a learning curve there that i i really enjoyed uh working through and the hunt that that rifle went on in in idaho became a love triangle between a younger buck and older buck and this doe that kind of showed up and it was really fun for about an hour to watch them kind of interact and chase each other and court each other and figure out who's going to do what and where and and uh Finally, uh, the, the buck that I had been looking at gave me the opportunity. And so at 50 yards, I was able to, to harvest him. And, and I really enjoyed that experience. I hopped over to Wyoming and went to a couple of ranches over there that uh, I usually frequent and, and was able to fill um, some tags over there and harvest a couple of nicer bucks. But the, the EHD had spread through that part of Wyoming southern montana and into the dakotas and drought has of course been a huge issue out west here and so finding uh you know quality bucks this year was really difficult and when south dakota called me up and offered me a tag there i i didn't think about it i just immediately said yes here's my credit mm-hmm. card take my money kind of uh, <laughs> response and what i had gotten back was a tag that had been um, returned and looking back on, it, I really enjoyed the hunt. I had a great time, but it was incredibly difficult and, and EHD and drought had certainly taken its toll in, in this area. And the deer tags, um, in, in South Dakota for this area, you could return those tags because the, the hunting was just so bad. And, uh, I, I kind of pushed through, wasn't able to make it happen on my first, uh, first shot. And so I I drove back to Montana, you know, 900 miles uh, to home. And I sat on it for another week, week and a half. And and it, it kept eating at me. And so I thought, I'll give it one more shot. So I had three more days left in the season, drove back and and was able to, to harvest, you know, uh, um, a buck there. And so this year really was kind of the year, the antelope four antelope bucks in in the year, a handful of does, but, um, I, I was also into some uh, cow elk this year and, and some mule deer in Eastern Montana. And uh, it, nice. it was, it was a really fun season for big game. Yeah. Uh, and I, I did notice during archery season, which is primarily when I hunt mountain grouse, the grouse numbers this year were really good. And, and so I, I kind of made it a point to, to fill some, some uh, well, I, I got some grouse through, through those archery seasons. And, and at the end of archery season, I have a tradition where I make grouse and dumplings and okay. I really look forward to it. And this year there was plenty for several, 
several helpings of, of grouse and dumpling. I'm going to need that recipe from you, by the way. It might be on my Instagram out there. Somewhere. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not hard and, and it's really good. And, and man, there's something about the richness of that dark meat that is just, um, it is, it is delectable. And, and I, I don't know, um, why more people don't hunt grouse, spruce, mountain, uh, rough grouse, but it is, it is for me, probably my favorite upland bird to eat. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is, it is excellent. Which one? Which grouse? I, I mean, the if I were to put grouse? A, well, if I, yeah, if I were to put a spruce in a, in a roughie right next to each other and you were to take a bite, I doubt anybody would be able to, to really know the difference between the two. Some people claim that they can. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't had a spruce yet, but I definitely hear there's a big difference. Well, to me, I love spruce grouse. It's, okay. uh, you know, but I'm not, uh, I'm equal opportunity, right? So if it's a roughy, I'll take it. If it's a spruce, I'll take it too. And, and so where will you put the, the dusky grouse in that mix or the blue grouse, whichever people want to call it? Yeah. You know, um, my, those guys, they, they bomb out so far away when you're in the woods, they, they almost scare you sometimes because they, they'll, they'll explode <laughs> out and you don't really know what's going on. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in grizzly country, it's a little bit more like, oh, what did I really just pick up? But uh, my experiences with blue with uh, with blues have been minimal, I guess to say. Okay, so I, I, I wouldn't okay. I wouldn't place them to be determined. Okay, dog wise, now you were Labrador, and now you have a Chesapeake Bay Retriever puppy. How did you and why did you make that switch? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I bred and trained labs for the better part of 20 years. And um, I've always really loved labs. They, they, what they're bred to do is um, as retrievers, they, they, they really have, you know, I'm saying this as a chessy owner now, but they don't have a peer, right? I mean, they are so, um, good at, at what they do and i really focused on that that english line of of labs and i loved i loved their demeanor and their personalities and 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 there was this duality between them where they could do confirmation or they could do field and i i really liked that because i think that was the original uh intent of those dogs was to look good and do it and and look good while they're doing it right while we're on the subject of dual-purpose dogs that compete in both conformation and field, Purina Pro Plan is a food of choice for breeders, owners, and trainers of over 90 out of the top 100 ranked dogs. If you want your dog to have ideal muscle condition, endurance, hair coat, and stool, feed the best Purina Pro Plan. Stop by and visit me and the Pro Plan team at Pheasant Fest March 11th to the 13th. We'll help determine a Pro Plan formula that's right for your dog. And if you breed or own five dogs or more, ask us how we can help save you money each time you buy a bag of Purina. When I lost my last yellow lab, uh, I looked really hard for a replacement and I had a pretty high bar set and I just could not find what I was looking for. There's a lot of lab breeders out there, number one in AKC for like 30 years running and and uh, because of that, there's there's a lot of uh, labs that 
frankly, I just wouldn't buy. And, and they've become either companion animals and, and they've lost um, um, the, the, the hunting aspect of it, or it's just unproven. And I was saying that, you know, I, I think you'd probably take a dog and train a dog to do what a dog's supposed to do. I think you mm-hmm. can, but I was really looking for, I was looking for Dixie and, and I was looking for that yellow English blocky head, you know, barrel check, a dog that was loyal to a fault. And um, I had a couple of really good leads. I, I went to Texas and, and that didn't pan out. And I was really getting frustrated and, and I'm not independently wealthy. So I had a budget too. And, you know, when you start talking about three, five, six grand for just a pup, yeah. um, it, it, uh, it became clear that that's not, I wasn't going to be able to find what I wanted. And so, you know, um, I, I moved over to Chessie's, which when I first started looking at dogs, you know, two decades ago, I, they were what I wanted. And there were two things about a Chessie that I thought about that have always really attracted me. One is their loyalty to their owner. Um, you know, I, I love a dog that will look at its owner and, and, and take a command without question and, and just be what a dog is supposed to be. Right. And, and I, Chessies have that in spades. And then I've always really liked the Americana aspect of Chessies, you know, American developed and bred and, and just the, the history that they have within the, um, the, the capital of duck hunting in America over there in Chesapeake Bay. And, and, and it's just, there's something rich about their history that I really liked. I wasn't real keen on the curly wavy coats. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people who say they have this very unique, um, odor and yeah. from the oil on their coats but you know i i really wanted a dog that was a serious duck dog and and that's uh you know if i had one love in hunting that you really pin, pin me down to say it's waterfowl and and so i wanted a dog that there was no question what it was supposed to do it was supposed to get birds and and so the other aspect if i'm being honest is you know labs will lick anybody in anything and I, I like a friendly dog. I like a well-mannered dog, but man, all of my labs had always just, they were best friends the moment they met anybody. And, and sometimes that got annoying and, and trying to maintain <laughs> them in a blind or in a parking lot or any other place. They're, they're just, um, again, it's good to have a dog that's friendly, right? But man, all the labs I ever had, they were, they seemed to be just, they'd rather licks than, than, you know, mind their manners a little bit more. And so, you know, moving over to the Chessie with their, their penchant for one, one owner dogs and aloof is a word that's often described of them. I thought, you know, maybe I can move into a a retriever that will just, you know, I'm, I'm their, I'm their person. And, And so I, ended up getting cane from a breeder out of texas and he is a dead grass color chessie and you know the chessies are 50 60 on the, the akc list they're not well known um outside the hunting community people think they're a lab right. you know a poodle cross or something but they they have um they have three different colors and in the dead grass i've always loved the yellow lab look 
and this was pretty close to that. And so when we picked up Kane, he was, uh, he was eight weeks old, came from a, a breeder um, that they had, uh, I think they had eight dogs in the house and the females, once we were introduced, they were friendly and they were okay. Um, the mm-hmm. males, uh, they, they never really warmed up to us. And, okay. and I, that kind of sold me a little bit on, I'm looking for a dog that knows what its job is and, and knows who its master is. And, and the way that those dogs handled at the house, I was, I was sold on that. Sure. But they weren't, it wasn't like they were aggressive to you by any means. They were just aloof. They're just standoffish and didn't want to be all up in your face. Yeah. And I think that's a really important distinction. They're not aggressive. They're not yeah. sitting there growling at me, um, threatening posture, but they are definitely a presence. They watch you. There right. is incredible eye contact. Um, almost unnerving at sometimes where, especially with Kane, he will look me in the eye and it, he will not break that stare. And, and it's, I've never really had that before. Usually, you know, with my labs, they've always kind of been focused on a, on, on a mark or, you know, the food bowl or something like that. But, but Kane, he will leave the mark or he'll leave the food bowl and, and he will look directly at me wondering what, what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's not aggressive, but when, when a new dog comes around, you can tell that he's okay until you prove yourself or I know that you're okay. Uh, I'm going to be on my guard. Sure. And, and I really appreciated that. Cause you know, the history there, they, they, they retrieved ducks during the day and they guarded the boats at night. Right. And so there's still this element there where, uh, they, they know what is theirs and, and again, not aggressive, but, but certainly aloof is a great word. Um, if you get into their bubble, they'll let you know it, but until then, you know, you're probably okay. Yeah. How old is Kane now? Let's see. He is, uh, I'm guessing five months. I'd have to do some. Okay. Yeah. Five months. So how's your structuring going with him? Does he know that he's a dog or does he think that he is a spoiled baby bird dog? My wife bought him his first toy before we even had him. And now every time we go to the sporting goods store, we go to Walmart or something, we buy another toy. We, she buys another toy for the dog (laughs) and he's got, I mean, we don't have kids, but I feel like there's like a two or four year old somewhere in the house because there's toys strewn across the place. So (laughs) there is an element. He is spoiled in some regards. Um, Okay. But I, I I really, uh, you know, I I really believe in having a stronger hand and and training your dog and being firm, especially when you're up front with him. So, you know, he went through kennel training. And it took about a week before he figured out what kennel training was about. And, and now he's okay with it. Uh, and, and our training regimen is, is daily, but it's in, you know, five minute increments, maybe two or three times throughout the day. Uh, you know, again, kind of let be a little worm on and be with him as much as I am. And so we do a lot of obedience training. And, and I think at three, uh, we were probably at three months and, and he was, he was doing retrieves. And I mean, I have not had a dog be so smart and so stubborn at the same time. Mm-hmm. One, two, three repetitions. He's got it. He knows what he needs to do, but the desire, sometimes he's not real keen on, on doing what he's asked. And so moving sure. past that has been 
the biggest challenge in, in training him. He is, he will sit there and look at you like, I don't really want to do that. And yeah. I'm not going to do that until I'm ready to do that. And, and I've tried to move a little bit from moving, uh, you know, I've always used kibble as kind of a reward. You know, I don't use treats. I use kibble. And uh, I've tried to move from kibble to praise. And it's really clear that he's, his food motivation is, is much stronger than praise right now. But again, we're talking about a five month old pup who is, um, he's way ahead of schedule and I'm really not pushing him. He is just, uh, he's moving at his own pace. Right. And he'll be, I think he'll be 10 months when the season opens this fall. And, and that's pretty young. And, and I don't see any reason why he, he won't be ready to go. He's, he's mm-hmm. really, man, he's so smart. So smart. And that's he takes awesome. training. That's super so exciting. Well. It really yeah. is too, right. To finally it have is. a dog that, you know, you don't have to fight with or figure out, you know, the secret code to, to get them to work. It's just, um, I got to move past that stubborn. And I think he'll grow out of that. Eventually he'll, he'll recognize what, what his role is a lot more and, and, uh, and fit in really nicely there. So I'm excited to see what he turns into. Yeah. Has, have you brought ducks home, anything home that he's been able to kind of smell and play with yet? Yeah. I do keep trainers in the freezer. Okay. And, Perfect. um, and, and we've been, uh, we've been playing a little bit with that, you know, they're frozen, so they're hard. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not trying to, um, I've used wings more than I have full bodies and, and he's, you know, he takes right to it. His, his smell is, I mean, it's incredible. Um, you know, when I go to feed, um, when I go to feed my peregrine, I use quail for that and, you know, I'll wash my hands when I'm done, but he'll be sniffing around trying to find where is the bird. I smell a bird, but I don't see a bird anywhere. And he is, it, it, it's going to be real fun to see him on his first cripple or, or finding something in the reeds. Right. And just, they have this determination and um, they're, the breed is known to have these problem solving like skills where they are so determined and dogged about finding what they know is there. And I can see that right now because, you know, we're in the living room and he's following the trail where I walked from the kitchen to go outside and he's going back and forth and he's like looking around and looking up and trying to find what he knows was there. Right. Speaking of following trails, the Onyx tracking feature is one of my favorite and most used options on the Onyx hunt app. Finding my way back after a long trip can sometimes be the biggest challenge of a hunt. The tracking feature allows you to record your path, whether you're in cell service or not, and it saves it on your map. This feature helps me feel safe and confident that I'll return back where I started every time I'm out. Whether I'm hunting, hiking, or horseback riding, I use the Onyx tracking feature year-round. Go to onxmaps.com and find out more ways to go confidently and have more success on your next hunt. So jumping into what you just mentioned there, falconry. I mean, the, there's really nothing that you don't hunt or like that that's out there, a possibility to hunt something. Is, is there anything you don't hunt? I mean, you, you went iguana hunting. I did do that. So yeah. Like, so it's not just big game. You got the bird dog thing going and you got the falconry. And so tell us, you know, how long ago did you get started with falconry? Well, um, Let's see. So it's probably been eight or nine years ago 
that I really tried to break into falconry. It's pretty difficult to get into. Uh, I recently just did uh, a podcast episode just on how do you become a falconer? Because uh, I get that question a lot and the hurdles and the barriers to become a falconer um, are, are pretty, pretty large and, and rightfully so. I mean, you're dealing with a raptor in a very intimate way and, and this is not something that you can just go and pick up at a pet store and you shouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my process to get into it, you have to find a sponsor. And in Montana at the time, I think we had 83, 85 spawn, uh, falconers uh, across the state. We're a pretty big state. And so finding a sponsor was really difficult for me. There's a, there's a, a state falconry test that we have to take. Every state has one. And once you've taken your, your, your test and passed, uh, there's, there's some inspections that they have to do of your equipment and what, what's called a muse, M-E-W-S. That's basically mm-hmm. where we keep the birds outside. And, and then you find a sponsor after that who will um, help you to procure your first bird, train you through the, the, basic, um, the basics of, of falconry. And it took me, took me probably six years, five years to find a sponsor who was willing to to be that for me and there's an incredible amount of time that a sponsor invests with a person and 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 like I said there's a lot of people who love the idea of flying a bird but when they realize what it takes to to care and house a raptor and then what you have to do to train that bird and then how often you have to hunt that bird this isn't something where you can pick up just for a weekend you're multiple times a week taking your birds out, flying them. Um, you are multiple times of day, um, especially during flying season, checking your birds, weighing your birds. And, and there's, there's a, a workload here, here that people just, it, it's hard to underestimate it. I don't think you could. And when a, fa- a sponsor takes on an apprentice, they're saying, I'm, I'm willing to be with you for the next two years of your life and and put the time and energy it'll take to get you to become a falconer and you know just in my own experience the number of people who will email me and ask me um what it takes to become a falconer and and will i sponsor them and things like that it is you know i I have i won't lie i have a copy and paste email that i basically send them this is what you need to do to become a falconer step by step and if you ever get to the last step, call me and we'll figure out what we need to do from there. And, and it, it really outlines everything that they need to do. But um, there, there's a lot that you as a falconer or an apprentice or what we might even call a pre-apprentice that, that you need to be doing on your own, the research and, and learning about birds. And then once, um, once you, you get to a point that we see that this is something that you're really willing to take serious and, and put the time and the money into um, will help you with the rest. But um, my first sponsor ended up passing away and he was a good guy, but he was an, an old school guy. He didn't text. He didn't email. I had to send him a snail mail letter asking if he would be my sponsor. It was like a month later, he gave me a response back, sent me the book of regulations that I actually already had. And um, he would occasionally answer the telephone 
but he required that I go spend a year <laughs> with him, just watching him fly his peregrines and, wow. and before he would even sponsor me. And so again, just, I'm putting in time before I'm even, you know, able to get his signature on my application to become an apprentice. It, it was, uh, it was definitely not a normal experience. And for the person that's becoming a falconer, um, I, you know, this, I've never heard of anything else like this happening. Usually you, you connect with a, a, a sponsor who's a master or a general or a master class falconer, and they will um, kind of step you through the whole process and, and get you to where you need to be. And then, you know, at their discretion, you can graduate from apprentice into um, a general class falconer. And, and in some states, that means that you can use different species of birds. It means that you can have more birds as an apprentice. You're usually limited to one bird. And, and traditionally, that's a, a, uh, a red-tailed hawk or a kestrel. Okay. And, and I chose to go with a, a, a red-tailed hawk. And uh, my first sponsor wanted me to use a kestrel. And when I got to my second sponsor, I, was, I really wanted to start catching game. And, you know, because with a kestrel, you're usually targeting things like sparrows, uh, uh, originally called sparrow hawks. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting if you look at the names of other raptors, they, they all have um, a name similar to that, where whatever they were, their prey species was, they became prey species hawk. So you had cooper hawks, you had um, goss hawks, which was just a corruption of the word goose. And uh, peregrines were called duck hawks. And, and so my, my red tail, we flew for a few seasons and, and she was a great bird, gorgeous bird. You know, their first year raptors are usually a brown drab kind of color as a, a juvenile bird. And then that first year for red tails or that second year for red tails, they get their adult plumage in. And oh my gosh, that red tail was so vibrant with the barring and the white tipping. And, and, you know, she just looked like an, an elegant lady. And the sleekness of of the rest of her contour feathers, her body feathers. Um, when you looked at her, she was just a bird that you knew meant business, right? She she had the look of predator, and, and but yeah, I was just, you know, even as a falconer, I'm just enthralled with with my birds and, and having them that close and being able to see them and and you know uh, uh, interact with them that that closely has been. Uh, it's the highlight for me. And I, I love doing that. But, you know, the other thing that really has to always be uh, ever present is these aren't pets mm-hmm. and, and they're not going to ever have that same level of affection like you would with a dog. They um, they are food motivated. And and because uh, they they have that type of personality, they they don't make pets and people who get into falcon or anything and they're just going to keep a bird um we'll quickly learn that when that bird does not have the outlet to to do what they uh, were designed to do as hunters uh, they're they're going to have a really a really difficult bird on their hands mm-hmm. what's the allure with falconry so like why is that not self-evident i mean you get to play with raptors <laughs> i mean that's cool it's cool but i mean especially people that have bird dogs like i know a lot of bird dog people that have falcons. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you have your dog out there hunting with you, why, why do you choose to add falconry to the mix? What are you getting from that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, anybody who hunts with a dog and trains a dog, you really get to, to see how that partnership works. And, 
And, you know, for me personally, I, I got in the waterfowl hunting through the back door of getting a lab and, um, and training that, that dog to do what it was supposed to do. Right. And then I discovered, man, I really like waterfowling. And, and when you partner with an animal like that, there's, there's a, a richness to the experience that, that can't be added in any other way. Right. You can have hunting buddies, but to have another uh, animal there partnering with you towards the same end of, of, of capturing your prey, it is, it is what, it's the reason why we do what we do as, as dog owners and dog trainers. And, and in the falconry world, it's the same thing. You know, we want to fly our birds and we want to um, give them the best opportunity to be successful hunting. And, you know, as a game procurement method, it is antiquated, right? I mean, it, your success rates are, are 10%, 15% and you, you have to do this a lot. And in the old, when, when falconry was a, a viable method in the pre-1500s before, you know, gunpowder really became uh, the impact it was to hunting, this is how you hunted birds and, and, and some small game species. And so they would keep mews with, with dozens of raptors. And so they would go out with, with multiple birds and, and, you know, you would fly a bird once or twice, maybe three times in an outing, but you would have, you know, six, seven, eight more birds in the carriage with you so that you could, you know, have 18 shots, maybe, you know, mm. with three birds or six birds at three times a piece. And, and so hunting with a falcon is, is definitely not the easiest thing to do, but the connection that you have with what I have always described as a, as a perfect predator is, uh, it is alluring, right? It is definitely mm -hmm. something where they don't need you, but they choose to partner with you. Uh, you know, again, going back to the idea that that bird could fly off at any moment and leave you and be gone, but it knows that it's better off partnering with you in order to be more successful as a hunter. And so that really puts a pressure on you as a falconer and work with that bird to perform yourself. You can't just go out there and, and think that they're just going to fly, find something and bring it back to you. Cause that's not how they work at all. That's mm -hmm. one of the questions I get all the time is, you know, do they bring food right. back to you? No, they don't. They sit there and they eat that stuff. So you have to right. go find that bird. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so the partnership that develops is absolutely two way where once that Raptor understands that you're not a threat and then begins to see that you're actually an asset um, there, there develops a, a, a trust where it can borderline affection um, you know, I've seen, I've seen some birds that really surprise me on, on how close they are, but you're talking about years and years of being with that, that falconer. And, and for the most part, you know, these birds are really tolerant of our presence. And, and I think that's kind of where, it, where it ends okay. and, and partnering with them in that way, um, gives you an ex it exposes you to just how, intimate the the hunt and then the kill is with with a raptor and and as a fellow hunter i think that's something that we all kind of enjoy mm -hmm. for sure your red tail you had her what eight nine years is that you said i had her for no i had her for three seasons that's the one that you just released last year i did release her yep okay 
So how does that go? I mean, with that kind of a partnership, is that a difficult goodbye? And, you know, knowing that they have, like you just kind of described that they feel they're better with you than without you. What does that look like? Yeah. You know, maybe even on her end of how does she understand this is my release and now. Yeah. You know, the, that question I think is, it's got a couple of, of aspects to it. The Grinnell was a wild trapped red tail um, as a passage bird, a first year bird um, here in um, Montana. And, and so she had had about seven months of life before I had trapped her in the wild and had proven herself as, as a hunter out there. And the raptor world is, is really difficult to make a living in. And your, your birds uh, on average, you know, raptors will have about a 50% chance of dying in their first year. They got about a 5% chance of making it to their, uh, to their fifth year. And so it's, it's, it's really a hard place to, to, to make a living. And it's been shown in studies that that falconers actually have a, a net positive to the raptor population when they take wild birds get them through those first couple of years of life and, and then release them as healthy birds. And when I trapped Grinnell, she was a healthy bird, but she also had, you know, um, some parasites in her. And so we got her cleaned up and, and, and took care of her. And, and then over the course of a couple of seasons, we, we developed that partnership. And when I made the decision to release her, uh, it was really based on the, the prey in the quarry that as a falconer, I wanted to target. So we, we hunted, our primary target was rabbits with, with the red tail. And, you know, we've got rabbit hemorrhagic virus spreading North. Our rabbit populations have been pretty low. And so mostly what we saw and caught were voles and mice, the small things like that. And, and what I really wanted to begin to target was waterfowl. And, and so when I made the decision to release her, I released her in the spring, which is the best time for her to be um, out there in the wild. You know, you've got the young of the year that are a little bit less um, educated to what's going on in the predator prey world. And, and so she had plenty of food available during that time. And, and when I released her, she went up into a tree um, and was watching me like we normally do and was was waiting on me as we call it and and i I took a couple of moments to just look at her in the tree take that mental picture um and then i got back in in my truck and i I drove away and when you talk about um the emotional aspect of that it's all on my end and it's not on hers and and so you know i had had this connection with a bird and had been with her every day for, for almost three years and with, with that I felt a loss and I felt you know this bittersweet moment but I also knew that by releasing her to go into the wild there's now going to be lots of you know red tail babies around too right and so she's going to be able to continue to help uh, keep the, the species going and we don't have a shortage of red tails but um we, we know that raptor populations being at the top of the food chain, they're, they're, they're vulnerable. And so, you know, I, I, I always, I still, when I drive by a red tail think, um, you know, I wonder if it's her wonder if she remembers me. Of course she doesn't. 
she probably totally rewild in probably a, a couple of weeks and and is gone. And um, if there's a memory of Everett, it's it's so far beyond that um, it's not going to come back. Uh, there have been stories of birds that have been rewild who have returned in some manners, but uh, it's it's extremely rare. And, and those birds go back to being being who they are and what they're doing as, as raptors. And so I, I released her in April and then uh, it was August uh, of this last year. I got um, Freya, who is a peregrine falcon. Mm-hmm. And, and Freya is a captive bred versus wild caught like you did with Grinnell. Why did you choose the captive route this time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so there are, and this probably goes without saying, really strict laws and regulations that govern the practice of falconry. And um, I don't want to dive too far down into that, but um, when you get a wild bird, there are limitations on how you can use that bird. And when you, um, I'm sorry if I said buy a, a wild bird, but you, you trap a wild bird. Uh, you can buy a captive raised bird and there's a couple of variations on that and I I chose a a chamber raised uh, peregrine because uh, one of the things I hope to to do at some point is um, learn how to use the use falcons for abatement or or pest control Um, it's a it's a really interesting and growing uh, method for especially airports and large urban centers, um, chemical plants, things like that, where pigeons are, uh, and and their their droppings are extremely corrosive. And so, using these natural predators to help um, control uh, elements like that is something that maybe someday I, I hope to to be able to break into. It's um, you know, the idea of flying my, my birds and getting paid to do it is, is really, uh, <laughs> it's really intriguing. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever get to that point, but I certainly wanted that option. And more than anything, I wanted to pair her in because uh, I wanted to get, I wanted to get into waterfowling. And so, you know, her, her primary target are going to be uh, ducks, but then over here in the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, we've got uh, California Valley quail pretty mm-hmm. common and yeah. and she'll be able to get right on those and so having a, a missile that you know either flies off the fist or comes from a thousand feet up will be she'll have plenty of opportunity and so uh, i cool. really like i really look forward to when she she gets to that point yeah do you ever let uh spectators go with you yeah we we actually encourage okay. that we we love <laughs> to have people join us that'd be um, super cool and uh, I, I do, I do have a lot of people that, that go with me and we go on a walk and we watch the bird and see how she flies. And, um, yeah, you know, people, everybody loves raptors. Everybody loves them. And when they hear, when they hear that you're a falconer, you're at a party or something, it, it's almost over overbearing or overwhelming because that's all anybody ever wants to talk about. Right. And of course, sure. you know, I want to talk about my birds, but I want to be a good guest too. And not just <laughs> monopolize the conversation, but we, sure. we could talk about our birds forever. Obviously we're doing that. Yeah. Just like bird dog people. Right. <laughs> yes. 
That's awesome. So how old is Freya now? Let's see. Freya hatched last April. Okay. I think it was April. So, so. Are you're hunting her? You're flying her? You're, yeah. So you, we we did not get on a full-fledged hunt with her this okay. year. Um, okay. We, we will this next um, winter. Um, we were, we're working through some training on her and um, she, she is a little bit slower um, than my, my red tail and how she progressed. Mm-hmm. And it's a different bird, a different style of falconry hunting, um, you know, each species and the, the, the prey that they're targeting, they're going to hunt in different ways. And so, uh, you know, the red tail with ground um, small game, she would get up on a high perch, wait for me to flush something and then just, um, stoop down to, to catch that, you know, and, uh, a peregrine, she is going to fly at a thousand to 1500 feet above me and then watch for me to, to flush a duck or something like that up. And then she'll stoop down and, wow. and hit that bird. So they, they hunt in different ways and that requires different mm-hmm. training and different approaches. Okay. Will you ever be able to wild release her or captive bred no. with you? No. You, and you, she uh, has a little piece of jewelry on her ankle. It's a uh, closed uh, band that was put on when she was a chick. Uh, can't come off. Okay. And, and so she'll never be released into the wild. Um, she'll okay. always be with me. And I awesome. look forward to that because, you know, um, like Kate Davis at Raptor of the Rockies, her her peregrine Sibley is 23, 24. Um, and, and so when you get, you know, I think we all talk about our dogs. We wish they lived longer. Right. And, right. And, you know, so to have a, a, a bird that can live, you know, 20, 30 years. I like that. In idea. captivity. That's what, that's what it is. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah I don't know what the, the peregrine lifespan is in the wild. Um, I would okay. hazard it's probably five years, well. six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you had mentioned that you did a podcast episode dedicated solely to that. So is that going to be on your podcast? It is. I think it's episode four, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay. Uh, It's called. um, So the podcast is called Venery and Veritas, uh, V-E-N-E-R-Y and Veritas. And you can find that on Instagram or anywhere you go listen to podcasts, but it's a great podcast. Number four. Tell Thanks. us. So, yeah. So first tell uh, what, what the name means. Yeah. Good question. So uh, venery is not a word you hear a lot about. Um, it is a, it's an old English word and it, it was the, it was the word that describes hunting and in and about hunting. And it was, it's a, it's a word that has fallen out of use, but you know, if you look and read older hunting books even up into the 1920s and 30s they used that word and it was just this all-encompassing idea that talks about hunting there's another uh secondary meaning behind it that kind of gets confused we don't need to talk about but if you look at uh, at the real meaning of it uh, venery talks about uh, what does it mean to to be hunting and so mm-hmm. uh, and then of course veritas people have heard of that's the latin for uh, truth and so when i began to kind of put together what i was going to do i wanted to find a um, a way to talk about things in hunting that were um, either less known, less appreciated, um, maybe had elements of, of, of miscommunication or controversy surrounding them. And, you know, my background with philosophy really fit with something like this. So we talk about things that are 
are really unique or um, or or have uh, difficulties and and uh, nuances to them that require some um, some thought put into it. And if you're looking for a podcast, it's going to be about you know how do I kill a bigger bull or more birds. This is not what you're going to find. But if you you want to know about um, you know a species profile on a certain uh, bird that you're going to hunt or uh, you know, the, the, the ethos behind having a bird in the relation, or I'm sorry, having a bird dog in the relationship between a dog and a hunter, we're going to explore elements like that. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's really kind of what I, I wanted to do with that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So name some of the guests that you've had on so far, the topics, and then what you have planned for the future, because you've been, when did you launch? Has it been a f- little over a month? Yeah, the first of the yeah. year we launched, yeah. um, and you know we put out a handful of podcasts on that very first week, and then I've been going uh, about weekly now, and then we're going to get to a little bit more um, normal schedule probably sometime around March. And I've had uh, I've had guys on there like uh, Tyler Parks, who's a wolf biologist. You know, we got a lot being talked about with Yellowstone wolves right now, and and mm-hmm. and. and um, you know, in Montana, we still got quite a bit of wolf season left. And so we did a species profile on wolves and, uh, I really believe, you know, knowledge is power, right. That, that kind of cliche, but it, it's true. And so we talked about how understanding wolf biology pack dynamics can, can help you to, to be a better hunter and locate wolves, maybe, uh, uh, a little bit more easily. Uh, I had a, a retired game warden on who talked about preserving hunting's heritage and you know we've got these old timers who are kind of hanging it up and and not hunting anymore and so how do we preserve their knowledge that that they won before there was Gore-Tex and GPS and things like that and they did it in blue jeans and you know a cigar in their mouth or something like that you know how do you how do you continue to um pass that on to the next generations and so really an encouragement to to old timers to be uh involved in things like hunter ed but also us as a generation who's currently do it to not just sweep away an older generation and now just recount stories by the fireplace but there's a real institutional knowledge that if we lose it's gone forever and so we talked about uh some of those things i recently had Jana Waller on who is um known for her platform skullbound tv but she's also an fwp commissioner Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to kind of explore a little bit about what what does a commissioner look like and what are their their roles and responsibilities and how does she balance that with um, her own media platforms and, and uh, what is outdoor media kind of looking like these days. And so um, and then, of course, you know, we had Ali on, who's the president of Montana Falconers Association. We talked about uh, what does it mean to become a falconer and, and, and what are those steps and and We've got uh, a lot of other cool things coming up. Uh, the next one tomorrow, I think, launches on wounding loss. That's an idea in hunting that we don't talk about. Um, but, yeah. you know, within the waterfowl world, we, we have a name for it. We call them cripples. And right. what happens, you know, when, when those birds are gone, do you count those against your own bag limit? Um, is there a conservation ethic there that maybe we should be looking at where uh, we increase the proficiency of how we hunt? Uh, we focus on big game there, but there's certainly um, an application there for those of us that hunt upland and waterfowl to mm-hmm. to that idea. Um, and we we've got uh, we uh, we have a lot of uh, episodes planned over the next year. We're going to be talking about uh, 
the change in hunting once guns once gunpowder was uh, added to the mix and so what was hunting like and now firearms changed the face of hunting uh some people on to talk about um how do you how do you really com- communicate hunting to people who are non-hunters and, yeah. and how do you begin to discuss those things and, and not look like uh, Elmer Fudd, which is what the anti-hunters call us. They call us FUDs. And, and how do we reform or revamp that image as hunters a little bit? And, uh, and, and you know, I'm really, more than anything, I, I am having so much fun developing it, talking to these people. One of the things mm-hmm. I really try to communicate is, is the idea that I myself am a lifelong learner. And, and even though I've hunted a lot and, and I talk about it and I write about it, there's still so much for me to pick up. And so really through the, right. through the podcast and I'm talking to these guests, it, it's, it's me wanting to know more and, <laughs> exactly. and learning at the same time. Right. And right. Uh, I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. Um, I really, again, I'm really enjoying it. We have some other things that we're going to be developing in the next still. Uh, over the course of the next year to kind of expand on, on the Venery and, and Veritas platform. But it's really about hunter education, hunter ethics, and, mm-hmm. and really just we, we talk about elevating your hunt. Let's take a quick break from this great discussion to talk about an easy way to be a more ethical and educated hunter by making the switch to non-toxic ammunition. With the incomparable performance and price of Boss Shot Shell's copper-plated bismuth, there's just no need for lead shot anymore. It's harmful for the environment, the birds, and for our children. If you're attending Pheasant Fest next weekend, be sure to stop by their booth and get yourself some non-tox shells. I got a sneak peek at some of the brand new apparel that's upland themed that you're going to love. For those not attending, head over to BossShotShells.com and order the best shells on the market. Direct to consumer and delivered right to your front door. The topic of this episode is elevating our hunting ethics. So why is this so important to you that's worth these conversations that honestly aren't being told and you aren't hearing about very frequently? Well, I think if you go and you look at this from a thousand feet up, hunting is, is really suffering some, some PR problems across the country. Um, you know, you can say what you want about hunting license numbers in, in out West, it seems like increases is going, or uh, interest is increasing, but, you know, overall it looks like hunting license sales are, are kind of stagnant. Right. And so there's, there's that element that I, I don't even really want to to look at, but I want to look at, you know, right now, for instance, in Yellowstone, we in Montana manage wolves at a population level. We don't name them. We don't um, manage them uh, as individuals. We, and and there's a lot that is uh, being said. There's a lot of publicity going on with with wolves across the country. You know, I just wrote read an article in Science.org about wolves and how they're, uh, in their words, they're disrupting a study that's gone on for years. And and so there's a an image being put forth of callousness from hunters that we can and we will hunt these wolves mm-hmm. and and i hunt wolves myself I, I have yet to be successful uh really hope that changes sometime soon but you know I, I wonder what is the social cost that we are bearing when we continue to put forth that we're going to hunt these wolves that are just north of yellowstone to the level that we have when the public outcry is is in in opposition to that and of course that's painted by 
whoever's putting forth that that idea at the time right but i think we we as hunters aren't recognizing that there is a there is there is again i think the word that comes to mind is nuance to hunting in this particular species in this particular area that we should consider if we want to spend our social capital in that way right now when we have grizzly bear delisting on on a precipice here where um, i would much rather spend it there and have people mm-hmm. be supportive of that and get that to to come to a, a finality at, at some point and so when i talk about hunter ethics there there are a lot of things that are happening across our country that is far more um, impactful and long-term consequences than just where am I going this fall and how many birds am I going to shoot? There, right. There's something more to it there. And, and the ideas that we have talked about in the basics of, of hunting ethics really foundational and, and absolutely should be um, taught and continue to be developed and, and refined within our hunting community. But I think there are, these larger issues that um, as a hunting community, we, we, we haven't taken, uh, we haven't taken enough time to consider on. And and so my hope is that we begin to have these types of conversations and we begin to think a little bit more holistically instead of uh, just focused on one particular thing at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. So talking a little bit about like the predator hunting, right. In which there's some controversy about, but do people eat wolves? Uh, well, Newberg ate a wolf. Okay. Um, you know, it, it has been done. Uh, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a common practice. Mm-hmm. Well, and I asked because there's the hunting for sport hunting for food and are we all put in that same group together can you well i i would i would ask is it possible to have more categories is it possible to have more reasons behind why we hunt okay Um, you know there there may not be a biological imperative behind hunting so Mm -hmm. we may not need to hunt wolves to keep their populations in check I think that's probably debatable depending on where you're at, but perhaps hunting has another impact that is beneficial to the management of wolves where um, their interactions with livestock and and negative interactions with um, other outdoor recreationists are minimized because there is uh, a a pressure put on them. And, and I, so when you start to talk about, um, whether you're hunting for sport, whether you're hunting for population management, or you're hunting for, um, you know, mitigation reasons, I think those are all valid in some way and in some measure. And I think when you talk about hunting for for food, that that used to be the most socially accepted by non-hunters as a reason for hunting, and. And I think it's it's starting to fall out of favor some. Um, you know, pre-COVID, people would say that, well, you can just go to the supermarket and get your meat. You don't need to do this anymore. And and then COVID and the disruption of supply lines really showed that maybe there's something more to being self-sufficient that we should explore. But I don't think there's any less validity to those that hunt 
for uh, for meat versus those that hunt for mitigation purposes or for uh, population management. I, again, I come back to if if hunting is the only, or I'm sorry, if, if eating something is the only valid reason, then it, it, they might have an argument. But I would submit to you that there's there's not just one valid reason to hunt. There's multiple, whether it's therapy reasons, whether it's um, uh, experience in the outdoors. Uh, there's there are there are several reasons why somebody might have that they want to go hunt, and just because one of those reasons that you put forth is not the reason that they are choosing to hunt at that moment doesn't mean that their reasons to hunt are any less valid. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. It does. It does. So what are some of the most common issues of with ethics and hunting that you're having, you know, I mean, you're having a podcast around kind of a lot of these conversations. So what are you mostly concerned about that you're seeing our issues? Well, I, I think some of the things that I would like to begin to explore are um, a more thoughtful or more philosophical um, hunter. So somebody who has considered issues, considered angles, and, and then began to make some determinations from that. When, when you read some of these older classics and people who hunted, there was uh, a wrestling with the with the animal and with the hunts and with the experiences that they had that in our kind of fast food social media um, culture now is, is lost. Things are they're kind of taken in, in chicken nugget form instead of in, in a more refined more substantive um you know maybe uh, a 12 ounce ribeye might have right so you have mm-hmm. and, and that's probably a really poor analogy um but it's the one that that's coming to mind right now where uh i i think that we have an opportunity as hunters to really take and explore the things that we have offered to us and the legacy that we have as, as hunters and and begin to recapture that some you know, there was a time when the tale of, of uh, Red Riding Hood was told and the, the woodcutter, or as he was originally known, the huntsman, was the hero of that story, right? And he came and he saved uh, Red Riding Hood. And, and when you look at our culture today, uh, heroes are, uh, hunters are not the heroes. And, you know, maybe we have Bambi to thank for the beginning of, of, of that decline. But um, there was a time when, when hunting was respected and it was revered within the cultures and, and we've lost that. Right. And so uh, I, I, I'm hopeful that we can, through some of these conversations, begin to recapture some of that vintage feel that, that, that is out there. And as hunters look to more than, than just the how do I hunt, but the why behind it is really important too. So that when somebody is going up to you and asking you, you know, why are you hunting wolves, you can reasonably be able to talk about, well, you know, you know, what I do here helps to mitigate some of these problems that we have within humans who are now on the landscape, who aren't leaving the landscape. And there there should be some kind of coexistence with wolves. But um 
Wolves, uh, they don't sit down at the table and they don't sign contracts and things like that. They, there's no discussion with them. And so the way that we have interactions with wolves is, is going to be a little bit different there and, and, and through hunting uh, and, and putting pressure on them and helping them to um, see that there's a, a distance here that should be respected, I, I think is beneficial because I want to have wolves on the landscape. Um, but if wolves are always, um, having issues with livestock those wolves don't last very long uh, in fact those packs mm-hmm. get get uh um zeroed out pretty quick what's your take on where we are right now as a hunting community in terms of are we getting better or getting worse with concerns over conservation and ethics oh, I, I think we're getting better i really mm-hmm. I, I think we are i think there's an eagerness and a desire from people to to know where they came from and, and the, the who's who of, of conservation history. Some of those struggles that people went through before us to um, create the legacy that we do have now as conservationists and as hunters and sportsmen in, in this country and, and across the world. So I think there's a history there that's very rich that people are wanting to unlock because they haven't seen it or haven't heard it in, in any other way. And, there's this, this eagerness to be part of, um, again, the legacy that guys like Grinnell and TR have left for us. And the, the, I think your average hunter is, is looking at those things more than they have previously. And, and part of that's because we have podcasts like this that people can listen to. Um, and, and the availability of media just everywhere in the world these days is, is so abundant that they have that, that they didn't have previously, but I think, and I'm hopeful that what we're seeing is this resurgence within the, the greater hunting culture that we have a, a richness that people don't know and they should know, and they should understand. And what's coming out of that are communications with the idea that we we do protect we revere the animals that we pursue and and helping to under, help people to see that again another cartoon elmer fudd is not who we are and mm-hmm. um there's something more to that so you know i i think in general i see that and then i see pockets where i just don't get it um you know the the example i've used in the past is is running over coyotes with snowmobiles in Wyoming. I, I just, I don't get it. And I think there's mm-hmm. always going to be outliers like that in any demographic you look at, but that is what is taken as a representative now of who hunters are and that image. And in that, that situation raised millions of dollars for the anti-hunting cause that probably, I, I don't know how that particular episode could have been avoided within the hunting community. I think some people are going to be that way and, and that's going to happen. But if we can distance ourselves from it, if we can self-police within the hunting world and say, that's not who we are and, and shun those types of activities and people that, that do those types of things. That's how we in hunting, I think, recover that image a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I have a personal theory that is absolutely separate from anything we've talked about today, but it all stems mm-hmm. back to when everybody got a participation trophy. Right. And, and from that, we have spiraled into sanitizing everything we can for the sake of 
preserving anybody's um, uh, feelings and anything that might be offensive, right? And I'm not sure how far I want to go down that road today, uh, <laughs> but I think what what I would say is when you when you get these emails from conservation groups is that you as a hunter um, you owe it to the cause and to yourself and to um, to the wildlife to be informed uh, on your own right and to be digging into the issues and and not just uh, assuming that what you've been handed is is uh, the most accurate information mm-hmm. and and that's really what I tried to when I, when I work with public policy and I talk with commissioners and, and FWP staff and, and politicians is that, um, you know, I'm working with, with the, the primary base knowledge that I can, right? So I'm looking at the reports and I'm looking at the proposals and I'm looking at um, everything that, that comes along with that and, and trying to make my own determinations and my own uh, opinions on those things. And I think conservation groups are, um, they're good at motivating the basis, but I think um, teaching people how to be informed on their own and figuring out these things and being involved in that is, is uh, I think that's more important, uh, you know, cause I, I could, uh, I could put out a, a newsletter for you, Courtney, and, and I could direct you in a certain way, but you're, you're getting something that has a, a, an Everett interpretation on it. And mm-hmm. I think what, I would love to see more of is people who take a moment and, and really consider the implications that some of these proposals have, you know, I'm specifically talking about our season setting right now here in Montana uh, on my way to Helena tomorrow to, to work on that. And, and I would love to see people who instead of just giving me a, a talking point that they've been given, but they could really tell me what's going on in this unit and what the elk are doing and why is this an, an issue and, and what are creative solutions for that? I think, um, you know, I, I, I work with a, a lot of different stakeholders on, on issues. And one of the things I really like is, is finding these creative solutions that are outside the box. And, and I think those are, those are hard to find. And it's difficult to work with people who have opposing viewpoints, but when you find the commonalities that you have and the passions that you share for wild places, wild things, uh, those are ways that you can begin to, to collaborate on, on these, these difficult and complex issues. And so I come back to, um, I love having hunters involved. I I encourage that as much as I can. In fact, that's one of the reasons I had Jenna on my podcast was, uh, you know, at, at the core of it, she's just a hunter and yeah, she has a TV show now, but before that she was a hunter and, and she is involved at the highest level that a sportsman can be. And I, I think that all hunters should aspire to something like that at some level. And you can't do that if you're going to rely on somebody else to, to feed you what, what's going on. And so really my encouragement is, is informed and then involved and, and, and make your own decisions and, and find ways to implement these, these strategies or um, suggestions you, you come up with. Mm-hmm. On, on the topic of ethics, what are some of the things that you can bring to light of maybe, I would say, especially on social media, because that's where we're seeing it most of little things that we could do to elevate our ethics and what we're doing out there? Yeah, great question. You know, I think this has been talked about some in, in, in other places and, 
and I, 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 I hesitate to say, don't put anything up on social media. And then in the same breath, I, I kind of think, don't put anything up on social media. Cause it's such a two edged sword here where if you put something up that is negative or can be construed that way, it becomes a detriment to the cause of hunting. Right. But you can put up things about hunting that are positive and then people see that and then begin to have an appreciation for what you do as, as a hunter. So you, there's this balance, I think that we all need to, to think about. And the thing about social media now is uh, it, it's almost as though you're just trying to generate the most likes that you can and, and get uh, that, that attention for yourself. And if that's what you're going for, I think it becomes obvious pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. Uh, and so when, when I use social media, uh, I'm trying to share an experience. I'm trying to share a story or I'm trying to share knowledge about what's going on in that situation. If it's a story, for instance, where, you know, my mom, uh, last year shot her first year in 30 something years. And I was able to be part of that. I actually found the blood trail for her, found the trail. And she thought that the deer was still lost. And I was able to record her watching and looking at the blood trail on her own and, and have the on, on video, the experience or or the, uh, the emotion that she had when she found the deer that she had shot for her. I mean, again, she had hunted, but she, she had been so long. Right. And it was almost like a little kid again, having that first deer experience. And, and so sharing that story was, was, was really impactful or, you know, the experience I had taking my, um, you know, taking my dad and my uncle out for their first time that they had hunted together in 20 years since they were kids almost. And, and being able to be part of that was to me um, so impactful or, you know, something that I I like to do as much as I kind of can is I'll do these falconry facts and I'll put stuff up on my Instagram about my birds and and what's going on and try and help people to better understand those aspects. And if if you're looking, if you're, if you're posting things with that kind of focus in mind, I think that's a really helpful guide to protecting you from um, things that might not be helpful to the cause of hunting. Of course, we're getting into an area where it's a free country. You can do whatever you want and you can get, um, you, 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 you know, it can, it can be what you want, but hopefully what, what I am trying to do through my, my, um, hunting and and my resume and and time is, is to, to find how we can elevate what we do. Is there something that we can do better? Cause I don't think any of us are doing it perfectly. I think there's always something that we can learn, always something that we can refine a little bit. And, and if there's an element of humility and there's an, an, um, an understanding that we can either be a cause that helps or, or detracts from hunting, uh, then, then maybe we listen a little bit more Mm -hmm. and, okay, you know, I was going to post this, but, um, I decided against it and I have hero shots on my, my, my Instagram. Um, you can see those I'm okay with that, but you know, I tried to, you know, clean up some blood. I try to, you know, simple things like putting tongues back in mouths and, and trying to pose those animals in a way that's respectful. Uh, you know, there's, there's small things like that, that go such a long ways and in helping to present hunting as something more than just, we are Elmer Fudds. I, I think it comes back to having something that connects to people in a way that 
is meaningful and relatable, right? Mm-hmm. And when you look at um, when you look at typical, and I want to say it that way, when you look at hero shots that don't show that you have a respect for the animal, even though you might, you're, you're missing the the story that you're putting out there, and and you're missing an opportunity to um, to share with people the the truth behind what that picture was taken for, what that experience really meant to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly believe that people don't want to do wrong things, bad things, unethical things. I think it's just a lack of education or having not know how to do it better or right or properly. And yeah, how I, they reach that education could be helpful. <laughs> I can get behind that idea. Um, I think that there is so much ego though within hunting that Mm. it it can often preclude um, right actions. And what I mean by Mm. that is, you know, whether it's guys trying to be, um, you know, um, macho is the word that comes to mind, or if it's ladies trying to get attention um, in, in other ways, I I think it all feeds into that ego in some way. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and if that is the primary focus, then the results you're going to get are going to, they're going to represent that. Right. But if you're, if your idea is to share an experience or share a story or, or share uh, knowledge, then I think what's going to come out of that is, um, is not ego. And it's now a focus on, on helping other people to see um, the various things in hunting that you have seen. And, and, and so it's not a, it's not a look at Everett kind of thing. It's a, Hey, look at this because this is what we do when we do this. And, and this is really cool. And this is for the cause of conservation, or this is for, you know, this kid who has their first experience or moms or whatever else. And so it becomes not about me. It becomes about the, the story, the education, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I just think, you know, the, the person that, that brags about them and their friend shooting up an entire covey. I don't think that they necessarily understand that there will never be a family in that location again now because they're all gone. And I don't think they necessarily understand the effects of conservation and don't chase that covey all around the land until you get every single one of them. I, I don't think that they understand that. Yeah, there's a story in um, in the book, The Old Man and the Boy, which is a story of uh, a collection of stories where the boy is learning from grandpa about how to hunt and fish and all these other things. And there is a even a recognition of when this book was written, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, and that you don't take the whole covey. You take one or two or three birds out of the covey because then the next time you come, there's still going to be a covey there. And so the practice of self-restraint is is an idea that um, has been there for a long time. But even that has been questionable, controversial, uh, if you go back far enough, when the idea of fair chase was first being put forth by, by T.R. And, and George Bird Grinnell, they were um, kind of outcasts in the hunting world because people were accusing them of uh, outlawing the pot hunter and providing for family and things like that. And really the idea was, well, we want to make sure that there's enough for the next time and, and for future generations. But that idea is now, is now codified in a law across the country. Right. 
And how did that begin? It began by hunters stepping up and, and starting to talk and, and spreading that knowledge around. And I think that's what it's going to take for, for all these other ideas. And, and again, maybe there's a resurgence that needs to happen for some things like self-restraint practiced within hunting. Mm-hmm. Where are some areas people can go to to maybe find out more? How can we learn? Listen to podcasts? Well, you can do that, right? Um, you know, there's one called Venery and Veritas. I think we'll we'll talk about <laughs> these things. But you know, um, I, I I think what I would tell somebody is, however it is that you learn best, those are the places that you need to go. And there there are definitely mm-hmm. resources out there. Whether that's finding an old mentor that you can sit down and talk to and can share these stories with you and, and is willing to relay that information, do that. There are absolutely are books out there. Um, yeah, Meditations on Hunting by Jose Ortega Egaset. And uh, it's a hard book to find and well worth whatever you have to pay for it to get it. And, and what I really like about that book is that it examines these, these ideas and constructs that um, aren't, aren't specific, but can give you um, ways to, to guide how you do specific things. And so it really forces you to start to think about some of the bigger things behind what it is you're actually doing. Um, another author, James Swan, has quite a few books out there on on hunting ethics. And so, if that's your your thing, reading there are there are some ways to do that. Uh, I have a list on on Goodreads uh, for hunting ethics. I don't remember how many books are in there, but there, there's quite a few in there that you can take a look and and then begin to to read and sort through these things and then wrestle with them on your own. Is always my suggestion to people mm-hmm. and and find out. What is it that you can draw from that that's going to help you to elevate your hunting? And I think we'll find that we have a lot of these things in common at the end of the day. Some we might not, um, but those things that we do have in common, I think, are things that we should be able to um, lift above the noise surrounding hunting and, and really help people to focus on some of these bigger issues that we can find. Awesome. I have a couple of quick questions for you before we go. Do you okay. have a minute? Yeah. I okay. Time. Okay. Quick round. <laughs> um, your bucket list hunt, you've done it all, but what is on your bucket list hunt yet? Well, I haven't done it all. Um, my, if I had a million dollars in all the time in the world, I'd probably chase Kodiak brown bears with my bow. Um, okay. that's probably number one, but I, before COVID was supposed to go to England and chase, um, Roebuck and and red stag in their native territory really want to do that would love the opportunity to go to to africa and experience a safari like like tr did 100 years ago um you know in the bird world number one on my list is uh the himalayan snowcock in the ruby (laughs) mountains of nevada Uh, Uh the thing has eluded me um for far too long and if you're not familiar with it just google it up and and you know the five people who have done it um We'll see their experiences, but yeah, you know, uh, I am going on a bison hunt this winter. So that's kind of the bucket list for the year. Oh, neat. Where's that? It's going to be in Northern Montana. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, you kind of mentioned a little bit about this, but maybe it's different. Top recommended books that will make a difference in someone's well, med- life yeah. that hunts. Meditations on hunting. Um, okay. I think is definitely key. Um, You know, I, uh, there's so many good books out there. Um, Otherwise I'm looking at my bookshelves now 
you know, there's, there's one I go back to frequently. Um, try to see if I can see it up there. I think what I would tell people is um, if there is a species that you are pursuing, that you should become a student of that game and find the definitive work on that. So in big game or, or birds, it's always out there. There's something like that. Um, so I would find that definitive work on, on that species. And then um, there's a book by John um, Taliferro called Grinnell that I really like a biography of George Bird Grinnell. I think there's been some renewed interest in him in the past couple of years that I'm really appreciating. Um, I like to tell people that without Grinnell, there wouldn't be the, the Theodore Roosevelt that we know. And, and so um, I, th I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, I really would, would push people to, to see um, j just what kind of a giant he was. And, and he doesn't get, I think the recognition that maybe he, he should. Okay. Favorite piece of gear. Favorite piece of gear. Um, the ones that work, I guess. Uh, <laughs> man, you know, my gear is, is pretty well refined. And depending on the hunt, it's it's kind of, um, you know, they, they all kind of are different, the hunts. And so the gear kind of changes too. But man, there's something about being on a mountainside and putting on my fresh new socks after you've been hiking for a little while that just makes you feel like a brand new man. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, my darn tough socks, uh, I really like them. And all right. Uh, so maybe that's my favorite. Perfect. That's, that's a good great. question. I've never really considered. Yeah. My husband's a huge fan of like socks is his thing too. And he does the darn tough. So it, okay. I I'm like, yeah. what? cool. Uh, what's your favorite hunting snack? You know, I tend to forget to eat when I'm hunting. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think about big game hunting mostly. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, I have cliff bars on me all the time, but okay. I think if I had a favorite snack to take, um, I'm going to go with, with fig newtons and, <laughs> oh. and, and it's not that I really overly love fig newtons, but it's mm -hmm. that they have always been with me because they're cheap and, sure. um, if they dry out, you can still eat them. And, I didn't even know those were still made. I'm just going to be honest. Well, okay. Um, maybe I'm a little older, um, experienced in my ways, but I, <laughs> I have always had Fig Newtons, and and so they've always kind of been there. Um, yeah. I don't right. know. And Loyalty, you can't have, I like it. Wh whiskey's not a – is that an option? No, nope, it's not. No. But what is your – it's – um. what is it, red? Red breast. Red breast. Yeah, yeah red breast Irish, Irish whiskey. Yeah. Um, that's always with me and it's my end of the day thing. Uh, but we have an importation problem right now, supply uh -oh. lines, and there's no more red breast. It, it's shame. gone. It, what? So, it's yeah. gone, gone. Yeah. It's gone, gone. Like within 200 miles of me, I can't find it. I've called. Uh, wow. I have to go to the drinking bourbon now. I mean, <sighs> shameful. Whatever. Right. <laughs> All my bourbon favorite listeners. <laughs> favorite hair. wild game recipe. Oh, um, okay. This one, if I, if I'm trying to show off, I'm going to take a tenderloin and I've got a huckleberry glaze that I use. That's really pretty simple. 
and I will salt and pepper the tenderloin. I will uh, medium rare, and then I will do this glaze and I will pour it over it. And it is, it is, it is so incredible. Um, it's, <laughs> it's deceitful in how simple it is because you can get it off and, and the sauce will break or you'll overdo the tenderloin. But man, when you nail it, it is, it is the best thing. Is it a homemade huckleberry? Yeah. So actually, um, well, the, the jelly my mom makes for me. Okay. Okay. And, and she makes a lot of it at a time. I'll go by because I can't pick huckleberries, uh, too busy hunting. Right. But the, she'll make, um, you know, 20 to 30 pounds of huckleberries at a time and make the jelly for me. And then I'll use that in the sauce and, and the gelatin will break down and I'll add some red wine and uh, some balsamic vinegar and, and kind of put those together with some, uh, some real butter. And that sounds that amazing. going to need that it's too. It's really good. Please. Yeah. I can't and then for Upland, is, is it the grouse and dumplings? Is that your favorite? Yeah, for darn sure. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I cool. love that stuff. I like right. these questions, these little popcorn <laughs> kind of questions. So fun. Like the little lightning round. If you were to have another hunting breed, what would it be? You know, I really would like to have a, uh, I'm, I'm one of the guys that thinks that, uh, you know, dogs kind of should stay in their lane a little bit. Like they were bred for a purpose and they're really good at that purpose. Um, so I, you know, my Chessie's my waterfowl dog. I would love to have a GSP to be my upland bird dog. Okay. Um, and I don't know if that'll ever happen, but it would be nice. Cool. I know some, I know some pretty good short hair breeders out there when you're ready. Yeah. Yep. Well, if they have a free puppy, I might be able to <laughs> talk the wife into that. Yeah. Well, maybe not, but all right. I'm going to put all your contact information in the show notes, but for those that don't scroll down and read the show notes, give us a shout out of where they can find you and listen to your podcast. Well, it's really hard. It's at Everett Headley on Instagram or everettheadley.com if you want to see my writing and other stuff. But uh, the podcast, Venery and Veritas, is also on Instagram. And uh, if you search that up, you'll find it. Awesome. Thanks, Everett. Hey, Courtney, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bird Dog Babe podcast. I hope you had some great takeaways from this episode and consider more ways to elevate your hunt. I'd love to hear about things you already do or plan to utilize in the future, so please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Be sure to check out the sponsors of this podcast, Purina Pro Plan, Boss Shot Shells, Onyx Hunt, our partners, Siren and Dakota 283. Join the Bird Dog Babe community and hang out with us this Friday night for a live recording of Whiskey and Wild Hairs at patreon.com forward slash the bird dog babe. This episode was brought to you by Briley. Check out their website at briley.com and get yourself a new set of chokes and see the difference it makes in your shotgun patterning. And don't forget to support the conservation organizations of the birds you're chasing after and the public lands in which you hunt.